Welcome back to Fintrepreneur, where we're talking about all things fintech and entrepreneurship. Super excited about this episode's guest, Nelson Chu from Percent. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no doubt. Why don't we start with a quick elevator pitch on Percent? What problem are you solving? Why is it important? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. We get asked that a lot. Uh, I'd like to think that we're actually solving the Excel phone call and email problem that persists in private credit. And that is pretty much the benchmark for all workflow that happens here. Um, so just to kind of back it up a little bit, uh, private credit is a, what we like to think of, $7 trillion market. It encompasses a lot of things that we all take for granted today. Small business lending, consumer loans, factoring invoices, things like that. So really, really massive market. You've probably engaged with it without even realizing it. And in this market today, especially after the financial crisis, there hasn't been a lot of banks that really operate in this space anymore. They all took a step back. And so all these non-bank lenders came out into existence. Your firms, your SoFi's, your all these guys. And those were all kind of generation one private credit lenders, right? And none of them are banks. So they actually need to raise capital from outside sources. And that is really how the private credit market came to be. So in that market, where you have borrowers who need debt capital, investors who have capital and wanting to earn yield and underwriters who structure these products it is all excel phone calls and emails to get transactions done so our job if we are to do it well is to really kind of bring that all into one platform one centralized place where everyone's looking at the same data looking at the same information talking to each other all in the same place having it all be recorded making it much simpler to interact that is the name of the game and we've uh, had a good run so far for the last call it, three years and change that we've been doing deals that's awesome yeah, on this podcast so far, we've been mostly focused on more top of funnel activities, the origination itself, customer acquisition, uh, the risk management layer, so on. But obviously, these credit assets don't get created unless they're funded somehow. And so there's an infrastructure there and there's pools of capital out there. And there's all sorts of problems that need to be solved through fintech on that side of the equation. Maybe back up and just tell us your sort of background. Obviously, we've uh, been investing a little bit on your platform, familiar with it. Uh, I've met you a couple of times, but I actually don't know too much about your story, Nelson. So curious to hear how you came to be and how you stumbled upon this industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's an obligatory. Uh, thank you so much for all the support uh, for our platform, because we definitely wouldn't be here without the support of, of investors like you guys. Uh, so my background is, uh, funnily enough, has nothing to do with capital markets and kind of really has nothing to do with credit. Um, but I feel like I was always destined to be an entrepreneur in some way, shape or form, because I was kind of a terrible employee. Um, so in that regard, you know, kind of made sense. But uh, fast track or rewind actually a little bit um, to almost like how I grew up. Um, so I grew up in, you know, suburban New Jersey, uh, nothing too crazy. My parents were pretty, you know, run of the mill, I guess, in some respects in terms of what they did. So my mom um, stayed at home to take care of me because I was such a problem child. And then my father uh, had his own company. Uh, and so he co-founded a startup or a tech company, just really a tech company back in the day uh, with a couple of his friends doing airline crew optimization. And so that's a very niche specific industry that probably has a $50 million total addressable revenue in, on an annual basis. And they got like... 8 million of that, give or take, which is not too shabby. Nice. And so what that means was, you know, software engineers, they developed programs to essentially ensure that the flight attendants and the pilots that are flying on various different airlines uh, would be maximizing their satisfaction, their union requirements and all these different things. And so replacing index cards and big whiteboards uh, in terms of getting crew scheduling done back in the day, uh, they use software to kind of 
factor in priorities, factor in seniority, all those different things. And so very specific industry. I have no idea how they got into it. Never asked them. Um, but either way, they've, they've done decent. They did decently well. And so my mom was kind of always in the vein of, you know, get good grades, go to an Ivy League school, become a banker, a doctor or a lawyer, and you'll be fine. And then my dad was always saying, well, pursue your passions, find things you're interested in. And then that's really how this whole thing came to be. So when I was growing up, you know, he actually, his rule of thumb to me was, if it's under a thousand dollars, you're not going to throw away after two weeks, I'll buy it for you, basically. And that was, you know, pretty good. So I was using a Mac in like 2001, 2002 before it was cool. I taught myself Photoshop. I taught myself movie making. I modified the crap out of my car. Like there was like a whole lot of stuff going on that wasn't academics related. And at that point, I said, okay, got to, you know, grow up, go to college, whatever. That's all well and good. So I did not go into an Ivy League school. My mom was very disappointed in that. And then I ended up graduating in three years. She was happy. Got a double major and a minor, econ, poli-sci, philosophy, none of which is that useful today, maybe philosophy. And then uh, went to go work in finance in 2009. Interesting time to be joining finance, I'm sure you know. <laughs> so I, I was at Merrill Lynch two months of Merrill Lynch's very sad end of its life. It became Bank of America. And so I was at Bank of America doing private wealth management uh, and more on the business intelligence side of the equation. And then, you know, let's call it year and a half on the sell side. Everyone said, oh, you know, sell side, no good. Buy side's way better. So I was like, all right, fine. I guess buy side's way better. So I joined the largest buy side shop on the street. And I joined BlackRock uh, in the fixed income portfolio management group, but doing more of the operations side of the equation. Uh, and then that ended up lasting me a whopping one year before I just, you know, couldn't handle it anymore. I was like, you know what? Never working in finance ever again. This industry is dead to me. And then here I am running a very specific capital markets fintech company. And so, you know, left BlackRock to do my own thing. My mom was freaking out. She was like, how are you going to survive? You don't have a banking job. And then I said, I'll be fine. So I ended up uh, launching a strategy consulting firm that helped other founders build from the ground up. And so we basically gave them all the resources they needed to be successful. Product, marketing, branding, engineering, do their initial P VC pitch decks, um, do their initial V1s of the product, and, you know, all those different types of things. And uh, we had a lot of good clients, good case studies coming out of that. One of them was BlockFi. And so, you know, great, great company. Uh, we were there when it was just a single founder at the time and parked in our office, helped them out as best we could, um, did parts of the pitch deck, did parts of the V1 to the product, did parts of the marketing website, logo still ours. You know, they, they cleaned it up a little bit and made it refreshed for this new era. And then that was the one that really made me go, you know what? Like, we have a team that can build products. We know VCs. For the right idea, the right time, we should do things the old-fashioned venture-backed way. And that's really how Percent came to be. So yes, yeah, so it's been a fun ride ever since. And, you know, we're ready to take things to the next level. But it's been a, a very interesting journey along the way of my mom giving my mom a heart attack, like on multiple occasions from <laughs> getting things to be successful, dropping them and then starting back over again. But it's been fun. It's funny. When you had those brief stints, you know, on the buy side and so forth, like going into those jobs, did you expect to only be there for a year? Or were you thinking, you know, if this is a good fit, I'll be here a long time or... So I started my career at Merrill Lynch in their South Jersey office, right? And I was like, I'm totally set for life. I'm going to stay at Merrill Lynch. I'm going to be a lifer. I'm going to be a managing director in like, you know, however many years. I have my like BMW convertible, which is a terrible financial decision graduating out of college. <laughs> and I was just like, this is going to be phenomenal. And then I lasted a year and a half. And I was after maybe six months, I told myself, I can't stay in South Jersey. So I moved to the city, uh, New York City after that. And then after a year of going to the buy side, I was like, you know, buy side clearly is definitely better. Look at Black rock so amazing everyone loves it and then after a year I just can't do this anymore so um it's been interesting but everywhere on my own has lasted quite a bit of time so i think the problem is not them it's probably me in which case you know i'm happy to do what i'm doing now 
Yeah, no, that's really funny. I can relate to that. I uh, started my career in private equity. I always knew I wanted to do my own business one day, but I was thinking, you know, private equity is pretty cool. Like I'm working with companies and it's great experience. And if I prove myself, maybe I'll get more and more responsibility quickly. And I thought, you know, this is maybe a 10 year run. And uh, you last. Well, so yeah, it was three months in that I told my boss, this isn't a fit. And I still, I worked for the remainder of my one-year contract and uh, on great terms with uh, my former boss. She's actually an LP in our fund and equity investor in Richard Growth. Uh, So we're uh, close to this day, but you know, that wasn't really a fit. I just uh, needed to do my own thing. So I can relate to that. I could definitely relate Nelson to the the whole family influence. (laughs) You know, I was sort of in a similar boat where I was working with a a big government entity here in in Canada. And then, you know, start telling my mom and my uncles and a couple of them that, hey, you know, I'm leaving to do this, this other thing. They're like, are you crazy? You know, there's a pension, there's this, there's that. And I was like, hey, I I just, I can't do it. You know, I have to give this a try. So that, that story definitely hits home for me. Yeah, it gets yeah. to the point where it doesn't feel like a choice. It's something you got to do. Yeah, here. like no, yeah, exactly. Not an and I think um, I have to give props to my dad for giving my mom like a test run around being on his own and running his own company. She was definitely probably much less worried because she's experienced it before. But as the baby and the only child in the family, there's there's a whole lot of worry. So she, you know, <laughs> has, has lived through a lot going through it with me. Fair enough. Fair enough. So Nelson, you were telling us about the advisory company that you were doing, and then you thought, hey, we have all these connections let's do our own thing sort of what made you decide on on this particular thing like was it did you notice that you know the large banks or whoever else had a lack of infrastructure like what what guided you here yeah i think it was almost like seeing the opportunity for what it's worth right so that advisory company we had you know always tried to start other companies in the interim and so we had a healthcare company that we had started that is talk about a painful space. I know you guys are in Canada, so it's like slightly more manageable. But in the US, it is the most miserable industry to be in, uh, especially with the amount of government intervention and like interfacing required and just navigating that process. And so we had helped co-found a company in the healthcare space, in the Medicaid space, uh, specifically for, you know, that's generally more lower income. Um, and doing long-term care, right? And we thought we'd have a chance. We had a signed contract with an insurance company. They were paying us. We thought we'd be in a really good spot. But even then, it was just very, very difficult to navigate. And so that company ultimately got bought out by private equity, but not for anything that is going to be remotely life-changing, I think, in polar opposite direction. But either way, uh, you could say we sold to private equity, right? Uh, so that was the the test run here also for us in terms of, you know, can we do something here? Because it failed not because of the things that we did around product, around marketing, around branding, things like that. It was really around the industry and the business itself, right? And so we thought, okay, we know how to do this, clearly. Where is the opportunity? Where is the gap in the market? And Percent first got started not as being an infrastructure provider for private credit. I don't think anybody sets out to do that, to be honest. Um, but it actually started off as more of a better mousetrap of an alternative investment platform, right? So kind of rewind back to 2018. There's a lot of different alternative investment platforms out on the market. And we saw a bit of a gap in terms of the fact that if you're going after these retail accredited investors, they don't want to be locked up for five years. They don't want to be able to, they want to be able to have some sort of liquidity in that time frame, right? And they also don't want to commit $25,000, They have no idea who you are. and They've never invested with you before. So we thought if we can put lower minimums and shorter durations and comparable yields on these products, we might have something interesting here, right? And that actually did prove itself out to be the case. There was a lot of demand, a lot of interest from those investors. But it was really as we we're kind of going through this process and recognizing the pain points that we were experiencing that we thought, 
okay, there's a broader play here, much more beyond just an alternative investment platform that becomes a lot more powerful because if we're having these problems, literally everyone else is having these problems as well. And that goes back to the Excel phone call and email problem. We were building our own order book management systems. We're building our own compliance attestation tools. And the most terrifying enough, we're building our own asset surveillance tools to even monitor the portfolio and the loan performance. So we're thinking, man, okay, so like if we're doing all this, then like what is everyone else doing if that's the case? And so that's really how that evolution came to be. Um, but it was a very natural segue and just, you know, we're always very nimble, very adaptable. And we saw the opportunity to evolve it and take it one step further. And that's how we got to where we are today. So that's really interesting, Nelson. If I understand this correctly, you guys were basically building block by block what you needed to run your own business. And eventually you're like, hey, everyone else is going to actually need this. So why don't we package this as a one service? And that's what become the company that you're running today at percent. Exactly. Right? Yeah. We have a three-sided market, right? And I think most VC would say you should never go after a three-sided market all at once. It's probably destined to fail. And I, I agree with them. Uh, yeah. So we went after two sides first, the people who needed debt capital and the investors who wanted to put money to work into debt yielding instruments, right? And so we mm -hmm. slaughter ourselves in the middle as that underwriter. All of these alternative investment platforms that are out there, generally they're either underwriters doing the transactions and structuring themselves or matchmakers, one or the other, right? Matchmaking right. is much more, I would say, low impact, but at the same time, they're also, I think, less involved in the actual deal itself. And so it becomes almost just like a literally a matchmaking system, essentially, uh, which is, you know, the value prop is gets to be a little bit less, I think, in some respects. Um, right. So by underwriting ourselves, we learn so much of what goes on to these process. We've done 330 transactions in three years. That is an insane clip by any stretch of the imagination. And we knew we had to do that because that's the only way you're going to learn, right? That was our learning engine to really get this platform off the ground. Every single deal we did, none of them looked the same. There was like little structural enhancements here and there, little tweaks that we could do to really make it better and better. And now we're really happy with how we've evolved it. But we operate almost like what an invest investment bank would do, what a structured credit desk at these banks would do just on a much smaller scale and on like a super turbocharged timeframe to be able yeah. to run these systems through and, and stress test them in order to kind of figure out what was missing and how to make them better and better. So take me through how you actually built it. I've been a user, so I know how complex it is and it's really impressive. And I'm just wondering, yeah, what, what steps did you take? How much did you build before you, you know, launched and started to get revenue? How did you sort of staff up? What does that look like to get today? And how did you time your rounds and stuff like that? Kind of how did you build it to this point? I would say uh, organized chaos is probably the, the <laughs> best way to describe it, as is the case with most startups. Uh, sure. So we... After going through this process, you can almost like boil down any sort of credit transaction into five key components, right? You have to find and source the opportunity. You then have to create the product, so structure it. You then probably syndicate it out to somebody, either yourself or somebody else. Generally, it's, you know, banks syndicate it out to someone else. And then after the deal closes, then you're going to service it and you're going to surveillance it after it's done. So those are almost like our five S's, right? And each one of those has very specific tech workflow built into it. And I'd be absolutely lying if we said we have all five locked down already. Uh, That's an extremely tall order. So we kind of worked uh, based upon what the value props were for each of these groups at that point in time. Um, so what does that exactly mean? Uh, we knew that we can get by for the borrowers if we just give them the capital they need, right? At a very cost-effective rate, very flexible, cheap cost of capital. If we can get that, we don't need to have a lot of tech there. 
if we make the, if that's the case then, and we're underwriting, so no tech for us, then let's focus on the investor. Let's deliver a good experience for them. So what do they actually need, right? For them, outside of, you know, table stakes of depositing money, KYC, AML, you know, the usual stuff around creating a platform, which was how we launched and what we had to get the bare minimum V0 out the door to launch, the ability to then actually monitor the investment after it's done was mission critical, right? That was actually something that nobody else was really offering and we felt was critically important. And so we went about the absolutely insane exercise of trying to standardize and normalize the private credit data universe, which is absolutely crazy. So you have small business lending, you have consumer loans, you have merchant cash advances, you have cons- you have a litigation finance, you have equipment leasing, you have real estate, you have all these things, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. None of them look the same. And so we had to find a way to create an ontology for each of those in order to be able to make relative comparisons possible across these different borrowers. So you can look at one small business lender and compare it against another small business lender and apples to apples get their performance side by side with one another, which is what we can provide today. And so surveillance was the starting point because we knew that was the biggest critical factor factor for um, investors to really want to be comfortable investing on the platform. And we knew that if we had capital, then you naturally you would get borrowers, right? So that kind of works hand in hand. So at that point, we shift our focus from investors over to borrowers. How do we make their life a little bit easier? Well, one was obviously getting the data from them and whether it's using APIs or doing very low impact Excel uploads, whatever it is, don't let them worry about reporting. We'll handle it, right? So that's also an additional value prop on top of the actual getting them in the capital. And then after that, it's like, okay, so what else is their workflow needs? Compliance. Compliance is a required part of all these transactions. We could send them a Google form, but that'd be very stupid. And so why don't we build that? And so we evolved to create compliance attestation tools out of that. And then so it's this kind of block by block to your point process of just learning by doing that we've evolved to where we are today. V, V0 was literally just investors have a way to deposit cash, get it, get accredited and, and verified. And then the, they make a bid or make an order. And then we actually up the wheel on the back end to show the investment hit. And we monitor a Google sheet. That was like V0 to get, get you know revenue into the door and, and run deals. We obviously yeah. have a full-blown syndication system now uh, that has dynamic order book building processes, dynamic rates. Uh, we have an automated compliance attestation tool. Like it's just, it's a very iterative process as is the case with all startup building. And you're just not gonna know what you don't know at the beginning. And so the key for us was always keep an open mind, nothing is taboo to talk about, and nothing is set in stone. Always be willing to challenge what the status quo is and the way it's being done, because there's always a better way to do something. And so that's how we've evolved as where he is today. That's amazing. What types of investors are you seeing most on the platform? Obviously, we're an example of an institutional private credit fund that invests. Are you seeing a lot of retail or institutional? Is that shifting? What's the trend there? It's so interesting. We've lived through like two mini crises at this point, right? With COVID and with this sort of market downturn. So we do have three types of investors on the platform. We have the small, the medium, and the large. And that correlates directly with the size of transactions that we do, right? We have small, medium, and large transactions. There's no world where a institutional investor uh, is going to want to invest in a $100,000 transaction, right? It doesn't make any sense. They're going to want more. There's no way that a retail credit investor is going to want to invest in a rated investment grade opportunity yielding 5-6%. Also not interesting for them. And it's like $500 million, right? So at that point, there is a stratification there. Um, but that is our three investor audiences. We have the retail accredited on the small side, the family office and the credit funds like you guys on the medium side, and the sort of the multi-billion dollar credit funds that are investing on these large $150, $200 million transactions that we do as well. The interesting part about all this is that 
Fundamentally, the five assets I mentioned, still the same. They still hold. You still need to source the deal, structure it, syndicate it, service it, and surveillance it, right? So the tech workflow technically works whether it's a small deal or a large deal. And by doing these deals ourselves, we've proven out that you can do profitably a small deal just as you can do profitably a large deal, which makes a ton of sense. In terms of watching the investor behavior change over time, that has been just absolutely fascinating. So during COVID, we had literally investors on the retail side running for the hills. It was like the probably the most net outflows we had on a weekly basis was during that kind of first, second week of COVID in March, April. And we had to think on our feet. It was like, okay, so no retail investor wants to touch any of this. Institutional investors are trying to be very opportunistic. No offense, but I don't blame you. Uh, and then um, they, were, they were asking for crazy yields. They were getting it because these, these borrowers needed cash, right? So totally cool. But for us, we were thinking the same thing. Like, what is it going to take for retail investors to actually want to come back in this? Because what's 9% is not going to clear 9% anymore. And so we launched in like a week, a very haphazardly put together HubSpot Dutch auction system that effectively allowed investors to put in, I'm willing to put in X dollars at this rate and Y dollars at that rate. And so we figured out what the market clearing price was going to be by building this order book through Google Sheets, essentially, because it wasn't built into the tech by any stretch of the imagination. And so we saw very quickly for retail, at least, nine became 12, 12 became 16. And then we had the inflow starting to come back in. So that was very interesting to see. But to what you mentioned earlier now, retail is always... So, so you needed to build a tool to be able to get information to understand where things are clear. And that was the V1 of our today syndication system where investors can input multiple ranges of APYs in terms of what the minimum APY is the most interesting for them, how much they want to put in for a minimum maximum. And the evolution, you can see what their first generation was and what the second generation is, it's now come to life. And so we're seeing the same thing happen right now, right? Which is retail investors have been a little bit skittish. They're holding on to cash. Institutional investors, credit funds, family offices are loving what we're doing and they're continuing to put money to work. Um, we still want the retail side because they do close a lot of the small transactions that we have. And it's very important for the growth of the borrowers that they start somewhere. And so on the retail side, you know, what was originally people were willing to bid, call it 9%, 10%, we were able to close deals at that range. Now investors are saying, I don't want anything less than 12 or 13. And so the only way the order book is getting filled is at a 12, 13 mark. And so we're giving guidance to the borrowers to say, look, put a wide range. If you have investors that love you, they will put in a bid at the lowest rate and we'll close it, right? And everyone wins. You get the most money at a cheaper cost of capital. But just give yourself a little bit of a buffer here and go for put a higher range on it just in case so we can make sure that you get the capital you need. Um, so we're seeing that. And the beauty of having the dynamic order book building process is that it allows for that visibility and borrowers can make decisions on the fly, even during the syndication process. Interesting. So in your experience, the most volatile appetites have been among the retail group? Yeah, we've had um, multiple chats coming in, especially during COVID, where it's like, my brokerage margin called me, I need to like get this money out. So like, I'm so sorry, I love what you guys do, but I just need this money right now. So they are definitely more susceptible to the volatility of the market, which makes sense. And that's also the reason why they want more liquidity, right? They want inherent liquidity in the products, which is why what we have is so interesting. And they all said, like, when when I have more money again, I'm coming back, like, you know, it's going to be fine, but I just need this right now. And every dollar that needed to go out and wanted to go out during COVID, we let go out. There was no holding of customer funds or anything because it's, you know, that's the right thing to do. So uh, we were able huge, to right? survive and thrive. That's a huge part of this, the sales pitch for you guys, right? Whereas everyone else, you know, when you put your money in for a certain period, you're locked in for X. So there's no calling one day and saying, hey, I want to pull the money out. And so yeah, it's like, you can see how that's you really just know to retail. 
Exactly. You just know this is the maturity date or this is the call date and this went out, this deal went out and I don't want to be back in. And so they just, you know, let it mature, don't put more money in and then it comes out and then they can just pull it out the next day. So it's a very predictable process. That was a big thing for us. I think retail generally needs predictability to build trust. And I think being able to pay out consistent amounts of interest on a predictable basis is very helpful for them. Yeah. And so maybe over time, even that retail crowd will become a little less volatile after they've gone through a few cycles with you and know that uh, the liquidity is always there. And we hope so. Yeah, we help their cause a little bit uh, because and I feel bad for some of these people, but uh, there were investors who wanted to build in diversification into their portfolio on percent. And there's one guy that invests a thousand dollars in every single deal. I think he's literally done like 250 investments at this point, something like that. And so he's built in diversification. We said, you know what? just for you and everyone else who's looking for this, uh, we have longer duration instruments that are effectively two, three years, give or take, that are blended, right? So they can actually get an exposure to 10, 15, 20 different opportunities by just investing once. And so the ability to kind of build a customized portfolio based upon this set it and forget it three-year maturity products, and then the direct deals that have much shorter maturities, they can do that. And so it's just, again, response to what investors are looking for. And this poor guy who has had to log in like multiple times a day to get into the deals on 250 times, it's for him. So yeah, <laughs> he's happy about that. That's funny. Um, yeah, I've always thought about sort of the trade-off between when sourcing capital, sourcing it from you know a single large institutional source versus sourcing from a large group of retail investors. There is sort of that perception that retail tends to be uh, a little bit more flighty when things get a little bit scary. But on the flip side, at least it's a diverse group and. They're not all going to behave the same way. Some will, um, you know, get more scared by what's going on than others. And so I think there's a, a trade-off there. I think it's smart that you guys have that, you know, range of different types of investors so that you're not overly reliant on any one channel or any one investor. Makes sense. Yeah, it's super helpful. Um, and I think the fact of the matter is our job as an infrastructure provider is to see these borrowers through their entire debt capital market's life right? From the first million dollars in the door all the way to a hopefully investment grade rated securitization at 250, $300 million. That's the goal. And we can always play a part in that process. And so to fulfill that, we're going to need small investors. We're going to need medium-sized investors. We're going to need large investors. Um, so we are the most, I think, friendly group on the street in terms of trying to work with everybody, whether you're a borrower, underwriter, investor, to make these transactions happen. Got it. Would you call the you know, private credit market in the US, for instance, you know, we've got sort of our pulse on Canada and a Canadian view, but in the US, would you say it's a very inefficient market? Do you think uh, a lot of transactions are mispriced? Are you helping them clear at what's a more market rate uh, by offering this sort of transparency in the process? Uh, how inefficient is this market? I think it's pretty inefficient. I mean, if you were to ask most, right, it's kind of a finger in the wind type exercise. And it's also like, what did that guy price at? And so let me go take a look at that and borrow that because you look kind of similar. Yeah. And so our ability to create the market standard for this industry by essentially standardizing deal structures, right, then you can actually compare apples to apples, not just the performance of a borrower, but also the structure of the deal side by side, allows you to start to get a better sense of pricing. And it's interesting because we've actually gotten, this is why I love having our, our chatbot up. Um, we've had investors come in and say, look, 
I just used your deal comparison tool and this one has like this level of overcollateralization and that level, this one has like a less lower level of overcollateralization, but then the higher overcollateralized one is actually yielding more. So like what's wrong with this situation here? Um, and so investors are clearly using it and looking at it, which is great, right? And that ability just wasn't possible before. So they're using that as a factor in terms of how they're pricing risk and what they think the yield should be. So absolutely, I think in the US it's completely mispriced, uh, probably not by a material market, but I would say in times of kind of economic uncertainty, the mispricing becomes even more egregious. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see how it all plays out. But, you know, I like what we've done here, right? Being able to bring that transparency. So, so far, so good at this at this point in terms of helping everyone just get on the same page and work together on this stuff to come up with the right price. Is there a geographic restriction at all? Like where are all your sort of clients coming from, from an investor side? Yeah, so on the investor side, it's all in the US. Uh, we do have a Cayman vehicle set up that we were very overzealous in trying to get set up because like, there must be a ton of international investors. And then we realized you know, how difficult it is to actually get international investors to cross. So it's still yeah. there, uh, but it's very, very heavily weighted towards the US. On the borrower side, we're kind of geography agnostic, right? So we have obviously a heavy US concentration, heavy Canada and Mexico concentration, just because North America naturally is easier. Uh, but we, we look a lot at Latin America. I think there's definitely a lot of asymmetry on that side. And so there's still a lot of VC capital flowing there. And so very many good companies and a, oftentimes less developed, but more tech progressive banking ecosystem there that allows them to kind of get and grow bigger faster, essentially. So we like that a lot. And we've been able to, on the subject of you know deal structure standardization, create structures in, in Latin America that mirror what we have in the United States. For example, like cash control, right? We have that as a trust, form of a trust account back down in, in Latin America that's similar to a DACA in the United States and in, in North America. Um, so all these types of things are things that we focus on to make that standardization possible. But we are totally geography agnostic as long as we can kind of create similar structures uh, in other parts of the world as well. Fascinating. Nelson, despite only being a three and a half year old business, I think you mentioned, uh, you, you did actually make an acquisition of some technology. Uh, it's kind of unique to be building your fintech already through acquisition. Can you talk about that deal and what tech that brought on and would you do more deals like that? I think it's my past banking life coming out, right? Like it's to do deals and constantly do M&A. Uh, but it was actually very strategically valuable. Uh, it's It was on the surveillance side. We acquired technology from Midcap Financial, which is an asset-based lender, uh, fairly well known. They're a subsidiary of Apollo. And so they had technology that was kind of sitting on the shelves there that uh, was focused on essentially doing borrowing-based analytics. So it's down to the loan level, right? So we knew that we already do a pretty good job of doing loan portfolio surveillance uh, because of the deals that we've done so far but we were shifting into not just doing asset-based products but also corporate debt right kind of straight uh, financing for companies effectively and so if we're going to be doing that then we need to have a one level deep review at surveillance into getting like integrations into quickbooks into netsuite into sage things like that getting real-time analytics on cash and accounts receivables and accounts payables those are all things that we would have to do if we're going to kind of go into this space and be able to provide that software to borrowers and also to either investors or underwriters as well in these products and so that's really why this acquisition made a ton of sense it allowed us to take that one step deeper look into it uh, and to be able to actually get that type of real-time performance at this specific borrower level that we just don't do today at the kind of loan portfolio level. So very, very synergistic and definitely important for where us as a company are headed next. 
in terms of m a and how we look at m a i love m a i think I, I would continue to do it uh, to grow whether it's to capture revenue to go after new industries uh, so you know comes down to right price right time situation but definitely definitely open to it and i think having an entire team of foreign bankers leads us in that direction as well um especially on the capital markets side they all used to work in investment banking or you know debt capital markets this is what they're bread and butter so they're definitely keen to do more yeah just a bunch of deal junkies hanging out <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's awesome you know, you touched on this earlier, but I think we can dive into it a little bit more. You mentioned that you're a three-sided marketplace now. You talked about the early days of percent and, you know, attracting investors and then building some value propositions and for borrowers. Uh, I know a little bit about where you're headed, but uh, in case it, it wasn't clear from what we've said so far, the third side of that marketplace, um, you know, historically you underwrote all your deals, but now you're actually bringing in third-party underwriters. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So very difficult to, like you said, get three sides out of the market at the same time. So we did it ourselves, not just to learn, but also to kind of juice the flywheel a little bit. But after a certain point, you know, there is a human capital limitation on just scale effectively, right? Like we're not here as a company and our VCs will be very keen to not steer us in the direction of building JP Morgan structured credit desk. Like just doesn't make a lot of sense, but that would be what we need to hit technically tens and hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue like they generate, right? Because they have such a, a large team. So our ability to get scale is going to come from leveraging their structured credit desk from JP Morgan effectively to be able to do these deals and not generate as much revenue as they would from a dollar value standpoint in terms of proportion of fees, but we would generate because we have JP and Wells and City and CS all kind of on the platform doing the transactions. We net software fees off of that, right? So we can get to that same level of scale. So that was always the intent as we saw the opportunity here in being an infrastructure provider to be able to do that and to open up underwriting to third parties. We closed our first deal that was purely third party underwritten uh, earlier in July. So that was a great kind of monumental day in the company's life as the software was able to stand on its own and, and be software for software's sake. I think we all had a nice little party here for that. Nice. Uh, but there's going to be a lot more of that coming up, right? We're slated to do probably close to 10 underwriters this year and they're ready to do transactions, all adhering to the same market standards that we created, all adhering to the same surveillance requirements that we have. So investors get the full picture in terms of what they expect expect that we've taught them to expect over time. And that makes for a much easier underwriting process for us to get comfortable with the underwriter and for the borrower themselves as well. Are those third-party underwriters usually putting their own money into the deals as well, or most of the time they're not? It comes both ways, I think. So there's uh, three types of underwriters, as to not to be expected, small, medium, and large underwriters. So on the small side, they tend to not have the capital to put money to work themselves. They're just here former capital markets guys have the experience. They may have a borrower that needs investors, they may have an investor that needs borrowers, whatever it may be, right? But they're using us as pure play software. Uh, there are tend to be the medium-sized ones, which are going to be sort of your boutique investment banks, some credit funds, et cetera, who may have a position in these companies already, and they want to syndicate a position or a portion off their book, right? Pretty standard stuff, happens all the time. And then there's the investment banks who kind of do a slew of different things. They may have it entirely on balance sheet, and they want to add to their position or kind of give them some back leverage or whatever it may be. Like, there's just a lot of ways that they play, but whatever it is that they need, they can use this platform in some way, shape, or form to be able to solve that problem. Yeah. I was joking with Prath actually on an earlier call about this, but you've built this entrepreneurial opportunity really, right? For on the small underwriter side, like if if I was uh, in my 20s, couple of years in, in, in finance, like I would just quit my job, like become a third-party underwriter on percent, start building a track record, doing deals, 
you know, you've really built the infrastructure for, for people to do that. It's quite interesting. Yeah. And we have no shortage of those guys who, you know, have licenses at GT Securities or North Capital and just are very, you know, adventurous and entrepreneurial and want to do that. So we give them that chance to do that all within the guardrails and giving them the support that they need because they themselves would never be able to service a deal, would never be able to surveillance a deal on their own. Exactly. We give them that leverage uh, that they wouldn't be able to have normally. And that's everybody wins in that regard. Borrowers get the money they need. Investors get more diversified deal flow. They get to make money as an underwriter. And we're here to kind of facilitate all that uh, and make it how strict are those guardrails because uh you know obviously at some level you're going to want to like be comfortable with what's flowing through the platform uh so you know obviously you can't re-underwrite the deal because that defeats the purpose uh you're not going to get the the scale so how do you set up those guardrails to make sure there's a certain level of quality control yeah, there's almost like explicit guardrails and implicit guardrails. And the reason why, you know, we're not opening up the platform today to the call it 90 plus underwriters we have in our pipeline is because we're not really sure where those guardrails are just yet. Uh, so the same way that we took it slow to launch borrowers, we're taking it slow to launch underwriters as well. You essentially, um, you could underwrite the underwriter up front. Yeah, uh, exactly. And then exactly. make sure you're comfortable letting them in. And then once they're on, then let them do their thing. Yeah, there's explicit guardrails in the sense that they have to adhere to our structures, right? So our structure itself is already going to provide some range that they can be comfortable with. And we have underwriting policies and procedures that they have to adhere to, to ensure that you're not pricing everything at some exorbitant rate or exorbitantly low rate, high or low, either or, right? High if they want to make a ton of money, or low if they want to try and get the deal done as as for as cost effective as possible. And like, you know, make sure that all that the borrower gets what they want, they win every deal. Like there is guard rails based on the underlying risk profile of the borrower that we can set ranges of these different things and for the levers we have to pull from a structuring standpoint so standardizing and normalizing the performance of the borrower is helping here right if the if their underwriters coming here and they're forcing them to this structure and then we do diligence on the borrower through our data to understand sort of how they're performing we know the range of apy they can go we know the range of oc they can take we know all these different things that's the guardrail right and then there's also implicit guardrails because if they want to deviate from this sort of like form or boilerplate structure we have here, then they don't get the additional capital we have from those blended notes I mentioned earlier, that diversified product, because those have very strict eligibility criteria to invest in it. And if they don't meet that criteria, they don't get access to that, which is an algorithmic allocation effectively. So if you want to deviate that far and those blended notes can't come in, you're on your own and on the hook to find the all of the capital yourself, which I don't think any of them really want to do. And so these are implicit guardrails we have in place as well that we've built in based on the platform the way we've created it uh, to be able to kind of use that ecosystem to our advantage. That's awesome. Okay. So, you know, fast forward five, 10 years from now, what do you hope to be the outcome uh, for percent? What goal should it have achieved? It's a great question. And I think, you know, in many respects, we started this business doing something very differently than we're doing today, right? But that's always the case. So almost like fast forwarding five years is disingenuous. I have no idea, to be perfectly frank. I have an inkling, but it's it's hard to tell. What I will say is that we want to leave the private credit market better than we came into it, right? And leave a lasting impact in that space. And when you look at Bloomberg and, you know, IHS Market and these guys that are helping facilitate efficiency, transparency, and all of that in the public debt markets, there's no real solution in the private credit side, 
right? And so if we have the opportunity to create that type of product, that type of platform for the underwriters, for the borrowers, and for the investors in a $7 trillion private credit market, and we can make a dent in that universe, then I think we'll have done our job. So that is going to be what we're working towards. We're very excited about. I think we're making little by little headway with every single new feature that we launch uh, is kind of making that possible at this point. That's awesome. Super inspiring. You've got my support, Nelson. It's awesome. Well, you've, so Nelson, you've been showing your support to help get us there. So it's much, much appreciated. So Nelson, two quick things then. One, do you see this becoming accessible to the broader range, the way sort of retail investors have kind of joined in without being you know, accredited, worth a certain amount, so on? And my second question would be, along the lines of looking you know, five, 10 years ahead, maybe not specifically the percent, but just as an industry, what do you hope will have happened? Yeah, for sure. So I would have loved to get regular investors who are not accredited on board. Uh, that is definitely not a percent limitation. That is a legal regulatory limitation that is just very difficult to dance around at this point. I think if we if they loosen up the requirements on that front, then we can definitely explore that, right? I understand where they're coming from. Like the regulators want to make sure they protect investors. These are not without risk by any stretch of the imagination, right? And so I totally, totally understand but in this world where 60-40 is dead and people are looking for alternatives because it's just very difficult to even outpace inflation at this point, giving investors more optionality is not really a bad thing, in my opinion. Uh, but I can't control what the regulators do, unfortunately. Right. When it comes to where the industry is headed and private credit as an asset class, and I think even just like fintech in general, I would love to be able to see the use of data and the use of all these things that have become table stakes really be used properly, right? So in industries that desperately, desperately need it. Public markets have really advanced a lot in the last couple of decades, to be perfectly frank. And that's through fintech, not through fintech, like just by sheer force by the players involved and how much money you can generate from that. You haven't seen that in sort of these archaic industries like private credit. I think real estate itself is also, you know, slightly archaic in many different ways. And so if we have the opportunity to really use fintech infrastructure and advancing that, um, I think there will be a lot of gains to be had from an efficiency standpoint, from a profitability standpoint, and ultimately, most importantly, from just a consumer experience standpoint, that is going to go a long way. So I'm very excited for the next evolution of, of fintech. I feel like we're in the second generation of fintech companies. I think Gen 1 was like the plaids, the, you know, the, those types of like stripes core infrastructure. This one is like the layer on top. Uh, and then the next layer is going to be, I think, heavily consumer-oriented and just user-oriented. And that's going to be a very exciting time, I think, for FinTech Generation 3. Awesome. Awesome. Nelson, it's Thank been you. a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for joining us. And until Thanks next so time. This is great. Yeah, cheers. We'll see you on the next episode of Entrepreneur. Thanks.